Welcome back to A Better Brand of Happiness, our study of the book of Philippians. This is session 27, and today's session covers Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It actually doesn't cover all three verses, but it's, a, it's, it's the first of um, probably two sessions on these three verses of Scripture. So if you would turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 3. And there the scripture says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. These three verses comprise what I believe to be a um, one paragraph of Scripture. And so, um, as you know, my Bible study method, which I have tried to teach along with uh, teaching the content of Philippians in this class, um, is very big on finding um, the paragraph of Scripture. So, um, in my method, I, we read the scripture a few times, often in different translations. Uh, I just read, read it for you once, and we attempt to establish the paragraph, um, as well as state the big idea. And so let's uh, go to that now. Let's state the big idea for this paragraph of scripture. As you know, the big idea is a one-sentence summary of what the entire uh, paragraph um, is teaching, and um, I find that by asking two questions. One is, what is the implied question in this passage? It's my belief that behind every statement, behind every paragraph of human communication, um, there's sort of an implied question. There's people are telling you what they think you need to know or what they want you to know. And so um, this is kind of a, a more difficult one in the sense that it seems to have um, two different ideas. One Verse 1 is kind of a summary of what Paul has been talking about before, and then verses 2 and 3 are about um, two people who are um, having a feud within the church. And so how do these come together? Well, I think the answer to that is that the first one does summarize what Paul has been talking about, but it does so in a transitional way that begins to apply it to these two people. And so to state that in terms of an implied question, I would say, what is one practical way the believers in Philippi should stand firm in the Lord. And I'm going to show you this in a minute, but standing firm has been a sub-theme of the book of Philippians. Paul has been talking about this over and over again. And now I think he's talking about it from a conceptual or a theological, or you might say even an abstract sense, to now a more specific way, which is in the way that these two people, these two women, interact with each other. And so I think the implied question here is, What's a practical way that these believers can stand firm in the Lord? And the answer to that would be by resolving the dispute between these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Okay, so clearly these two women, as we'll get to probably more next week, um, had a serious problem with each other. And their serious problem was so serious that Paul named them personally in Holy Scripture. It's not doesn't happen very often. And um, he had heard about it all the way in Rome where he was in prison. And so it was a serious problem, even though 
it doesn't seem to be like heresy that they were arguing over, but whatever it was, it was, it was a serious threat to the church. And so Paul is saying, look, if you're going to stand firm in the Lord, you've got to apply that to even a situation like this, where two people are bickering with one another. So that's how I understand the one idea. And so to kind of rephrase this um, into one sentence, and it's a sentence that has um, maybe a more general application beyond just these two people, I would put my big idea statement this way. Standing firm in the Lord means, among other things, resolving problems with other believers. That's not the only thing it means, but in this context, that's one thing it means. All right, and so let's, um, let's keep that in mind as we delve into the content for this morning's session. And it begins with Paul's command in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Even though there are some preliminary words before we get to that phrase in verse 1, the core idea of verse 1 is stand firm in the Lord. It's a command, and it's a command that Paul is repeating here. This passage begins with Paul's repeated command to stand firm in the Lord. Now, standing firm means to remain steadfast. It's a word that means to remain faithful without giving up or betraying the Lord. That's what Paul's arguing for. That's what he's trying to urge the Philippian believers to do. Remain faithful to the Lord. Don't give up on your faith. Don't turn your back on your Lord Jesus Christ. And this describes what is called in the Bible, what, what I've called in this course already, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That when a person is truly a believer in Jesus Christ, that person will continue from the time of his or her conversion to the end of their life in two things, faith and good works. Now, it's not, an, it's not a straight-up line. There's, there's dips and there may be moments of doubt, but um, the point of perseverance is that throughout a person's life, that person never ultimately turns their back finally on Jesus, and they, and they, have, a, um, they have a pattern in their life of growth in their faith and in their, um, in their good works. And this is what Paul is describing here. When he says remain steadfast, he's saying continue to persevere, cling to Jesus Christ, and hold steadfastly to him. Verse 1 says the believers are to remain steadfast. Notice it says at the end of the verse, in the Lord. And this is a phrase, again, that talks about their faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul has introduced this idea of standing firm back in chapter 1, verse 27. And you might want to turn back to that verse. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul introduced the same idea that he comes back to here in chapter 4, verse 1. The idea of standing firm in the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.27 says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remember, Paul's, the whatever happens here refers to Paul's imprisonment. Whether he gets out or gets killed, Paul says, whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. But then he goes on and says this in chapter 1, verse 27. Then, whether I come, whether I get to come back to Philippi and see you again, or only hear about you in my absence, whether I'm still stuck here in prisons, Paul says, I will know that you stand firm. There it is. It's the same word. The same word in chapter 1, verse 27, stand firm, is repeated here in chapter 4, verse 1. And in 127, Paul continues and says, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul is now returning to that. You can turn back to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul's returning to this idea 
This idea he laid down in chapter 1, verse 27, to stand firm in the Lord. And that phrase, stand firm, in 127, and here in chapter 4, verse 1, again, are translations of the same word in the, in the original Greek. Now, the content between chapter 1, verse 27, and here in chapter 4, verse 1, really describes together what it means to stand firm in the Lord. That's one way of looking at from chapter 1, verse 27 to chapter 4, verse 1, as Paul is going into some detail about what it means to stand firm in the Lord. And standing firm and striving together, which Paul said in chapter 1, verse 27, means valuing, it means a bunch of things. All right, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to walk through the paragraphs that we've already studied in Philippians and show you how each of them relates to the idea of standing firm and striving together. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Paul told us that standing firm and striving together means valuing and serving each other over ourselves because we're united to Christ, and he valued us and served us over himself. And then in chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, we learn that standing firm and striving together means being a bright light for God through obedience and faithfulness, regardless of the circumstances. And then in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, we learn that standing firm and striving together means welcoming and honoring men like Timothy and Epaphroditus because of their work for God. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, standing firm and striving together, we saw meant adopting Paul's goal to know Christ and follow his example. And so as we've worked our way through this section between chapter 1 and now the beginning of chapter 4, Paul has been trying to show them that their faith in Christ needs to be applied in these certain ways. It need to be, needs to be thought about and considered from these different perspectives. Now, here in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is transitioning, all right? And so I'm telling you that this verse is transitional, which means it could be taken with the preceding paragraph or it could be taken with this paragraph. When you go through a door, okay, especially if it's a door that swings both ways or one that revolves around, at times that door is on the outside of the building, at times it's on the inside of the building. Why? Because it's transitional, okay? And so verses of Scripture can work this way too. They, they, they carry you from outside the building to inside the building. Verses of Scripture carry you from one idea to another, and showing that there's a connection between them, even though they are separate from each other, logically speaking. And that's what this verse does. It carries all of this teaching that Paul has been giving about standing firm in the Lord and what it means for the church. And now it begins to apply it to a very specific situation. And so this verse, chapter 4, verse 1, concludes a large section that precedes from chapter 1, verse 27 to chapter 3, verse 31. But it also introduces and applies those truths moving forward to the situation between Euodia and Syntyche, which we'll get to next Sunday in verses 2 and 3. Now, the main thought in verse 1, again, is the command, stand firm in the Lord in this way. That's the, that's the, the sentence, really, the, the core of the sentence, the subject and verb. It's you stand firm. It's a command. But it's a command that's bracketed both before and after with lavish words of love and devotion for the Philippian believers. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 again. Paul says, therefore, my brothers and sisters... You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. So Paul labors the point, he belabors the point of his love and affection for these people and how important they are to him. He goes to great lengths to, to lavish 
words of love and affection for these people before he commands them again to stand firm in the Lord. And then after he says, stand firm in the Lord, he puts some more on, okay? At the end of, the, of verse 1, he says, stand firm in the Lord, and in this way, dear friends. And so Paul is going to great lengths to, you might say, lubricate his command to stand firm with these reassurances of how important the Philippian believers are to him, how much he loves them and cares for them, and how, how critical he finds the relationship uh, that he has with them to be in his life. And so Paul gives a command in verse 1, but it's bracketed before and, aver- and after with these lavish words of love and affection. And let's go into these um, words that he talks about. In verse 1 he says again, Therefore, my brothers and sisters... Now, in the original language, there's only one word there, brothers, all right? Um, but the word sisters is included by the NIV translation because Paul clearly does not mean to rule out women. In his culture, people would understand, the, the church would understand that women were included in this command. In our culture, not so much. Even if I said to you, brothers, let's do this together the women among you might wonder, is he really talking to us, though, or is he just talking to the guys? Okay, language, the English language has changed, and language itself has changed. And so the NIV translation isn't designed to include the women, and we know that women are included because the next people he talks to are women, okay? And so it's, it's kind of important to make sure that women and men who read this understand that not just men are specified here. But again, in the original language, just the word brothers is, uh, is given, And the word brothers, of course, emphasizes that Paul and the Philippians belong to the same family, the family of God. Now, Paul in his writings at various times will adopt different postures toward the churches that he is writing to. This this book begins with the words, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. And some of Paul's letters start that way. Paul begins by saying, not that I am your apostle, but that I am a servant of Christ. In most of Paul's language, though, he does say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And true apostles are servants, but the word apostle had, became a technical word in the original church. It was a word that referred to the twelve those chosen by Christ himself to be the leaders of his church. And when Paul or Peter or anyone invoked the fact that they were an apostle, they were setting up the the listeners to understand that what they are delivering them are words of authority. Now, again, they're not designed to exploit the church. It's not a kind of heavy-handed type of authority for the apostles' benefit. But rather it's to say, what I'm telling you is not optional. This is God's command to you from me, the sent one, the apostle. Paul, in his writings, refers to himself as a servant of Christ. He calls himself your servants, your servant at, at times. Sometimes he calls himself an apostle, but often he says, we are brothers. Often he uses this terminology of the family. And of course, brothers are peers within a family. And it's true that there can be, you know, you can look up to your older brother, and older brothers um, often had greater authority within the family after the father dies. 
but they don't have the same role as a father does. And so by, by using this phrase, brothers, Paul is emphasizing the family relationship that he has with these Philippian believers. In a sense, he, he's sort of putting his arm around them like you, like you might do to your younger siblings or like your older sibling might do to you. It's a way of encouraging God's people, but in a way that says we stand together. We owe our lives, spiritually speaking, to Jesus Christ. And we call upon the Father and we obey the Father because we belong to Him. We're His children and it's our job to be obedient to Him. And so Paul's encouragement here is a brotherly kind of encouragement. It emphasizes the family relationship. But notice verse 1 goes on and says this, because as you know, Sometimes people use the word brother just as a word of address, especially when they can't remember your name, right? So they say, hey, brother. And, and yes, it does invoke those warm family affections, but also just might be, again, that they can't remember what your name is, and so they want to say something personal, and so they choose that instead, all right? Hey, bro, we might people sometimes say today. Well, Paul goes on to um, show that he means more than just this is just a, a common title of address in the Christian church, when he says in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for. The word love is a, a word that um, is behind the word beloved, okay? It's, it's one word. It's, it's, uh, the, word the, it, the NIV translation has broken it out to I, the one I love, but it's actually just one word. It means you, you are my beloved ones. And this is one of the words that Paul uses most often in the New Testament to refer to other people. He calls people my fellow workers. He will later on in this section. He calls them um, my children in some instances. He calls them brothers and sisters. He calls them the church of Jesus Christ. He has different words of address for the people that he is writing to. But the one he uses most often is this one, my beloved, the ones I love. And Paul pulls that language out here after calling them brothers and sisters. But then he says this next in verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for. And this is even more personal in a sense. In contrast to the word beloved, the Greek word behind this translation only shows up here in the New Testament. So Paul uses a word beloved that he uses more often than ever to, to any other word that, to um, refer to people that he's writing to. And then he couples it with a word he uses nowhere else in the New Testament. You who I love, long for. And why does he do this? Well, again, it's because he is separated from them against his will. He's in Rome. He's stuck in prison. He can't come to Philippi no matter how much he might want to. And yet he's, his thoughts are consumed with the Philippians. He's very concerned about them, but, but not, not only that, he misses them and he wants to see them. And so this phrase, you whom I long for, is a way of describing, in a sense, his homesickness. In fact, one, trans, one, uh, one um, commentary I consulted kind of translated the word or explained it this way. He says this is a homesick kind of tenderness. I think he's right. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying here when he says, I long for you. He's saying, I have this homesick tenderness for you. I miss you people. And again, Paul had already stated his desire in Philippians to see this church again, to see the people who belong to the Lord in Philippi. In chapter 1, verse 8, he wrote, God can testify how I long for all of you 
with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so at the very beginning of the letter, Paul says, I got to tell you, I'm stuck here in prison, but my mind is, about, is on you. I'm thinking about you, and I wish I could see you. And then again in chapter 1, verse 26, he wrote, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul is saying, my expectation is I'm going to get released from prison, and at some point I want to come back to Philippi and see you again, so that being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound. And then in chapter 2, verse 24, he wrote, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. This is after he says, I want to send Timothy, but first I'm sending Epaphroditus to you. Paul says, I I hope in the Lord that I'm going to come to you as well. Okay, so three times in the letter already, Paul has said, I'm thinking about you and wish I could be with you. I'm hoping I get a chance to come see you. I'm planning to come see you. He said it in chapter 1, verse 8, in chapter 1, verse 26, in chapter 2, verse 24. Now, here in chapter 4, verse 1, when Paul says that the Philippians are those I love and long for, he is underlining as much as he can his love for these people his deep personal connection to them, the church. And then he goes on in verse 1 to say more. He says in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. And this brings a new dimension to the importance of the relationship to Paul. This phrase, my joy and my crown, is an eschatological phrase. It looks forward to eternity. And we say that for a couple of reasons. One is because um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, Paul uses the same language, but he does it with the view, in view of the coming of Christ. Listen, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, Paul says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. And so in 1 Thessalonians, Paul uses the same type of language, my joy and my crown. He says, you are going to be my crown when, when Jesus comes and we stand before him in judgment. And so we think that, uh, Paul, when he says, my joy and crown, he has the same idea in view here. He has the same thought in mind. He's thinking about the day in which he stands before Christ. And these believers will be part of his his reward before the Lord Jesus Christ. But also here in Philippians, Paul has already indicated his confidence that these believers in Philippi will be his reward in eternity. Back in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul said, as you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. See, one of the things Paul was worried about was that he would go out and he would preach in these cities and he would get a bunch of false converts who over time and persecution would fall away from the Lord. That's why he's constantly saying, stand firm in the Lord. And his worry was, in a sense, it's not a worry in the sense, the kind of anxiety we think of, but he knew that the, that there would be false converts in the world. And his thought was, what if I did all of this work and endured all this persecution and went to all these towns and not a single one of these people that I preached the gospel message to who made a decision to follow Jesus actually was truly converted, actually truly persevered in their faith. And then I stand before Jesus and said, well, I did my best for you, Lord, but I got nothing. 
That's sort of behind the words that Paul is using here. And he did not worry about that with the Philippians. He knew, he believed that they would persevere and that they would be with him at the coming judgment of Christ. And so he's saying, you will be the evidence that God has been using me, that God has been working in me, that my toils and struggles and persecution I face was not worth nothing, was not a waste of time or pain or effort. Instead, he says, I believe that you people that I love so much are going to be with me before the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to be the reward that I present to him. And so this is what Paul is saying. He's already said in 2.16 that on that, the day of Christ, I, uh, I, you are, if you hold firmly to the word of life, I will be able to boast that I did not run or labor in vain. And again, he uses that same language to hold firmly in chapter 2.16. That's similar to chapter 4, verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. Now, when Paul calls them my joy and my crown in chapter 4, verse 1, he's saying, you are my joy in the present and my crown in the future at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the word crown, you need to understand, does not refer to what you might think, something a monarch wears that's glittering with gold and precious stones. It's not that kind of crown. Okay, the crown that Paul is describing here is a wreath made of plant leaves. Who would want to wear this? I'll tell you who. Somebody who competed in the Greco-Roman games and won. That's what they would get. All right, they didn't get a gold medal. They got a wreath fashioned together out of leaves. And for as long as that wreath lasted, they could wear it around and people would know, hey, that's the guy who won, you know, the marathon in the Roman games or whatever. It is a reward for winning. And as Paul describes this, this church here and the other churches as his crown, he is saying it's a symbol, you are a symbolic a symbol, well, that means the same thing. You are a symbol of my victory in Christ. You're the, you're the reward that I get for following Christ and for being obedient to him and for preaching the gospel. And in saying that they're his reward, he, he, it's another way of saying how much he treasures them, how, much, how important it is to him that they are there on the day of Christ. Not so that he gets declared a winner, but but because he gets to enjoy their fellowship for all eternity. All right, and so this crown that he refers to in chapter 4, verse 1, is not, a symbol of victory, uh, is not a symbol of royalty, it's a symbol of victory. And Paul, of course, knows this victory comes as a result of his faith in Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, before he commands them to stand firm in the Lord, he says, my brothers and sisters, whom I love, whom I long for, who are, are my joy and my crown, stand firm. And then when he gets, after he gives the command to stand firm, he says, he calls them my dear friends, okay? And so he adds even more onto the end, after the command. And this is the same word uh, as earlier in verse 1 when, he calls, when Paul said, whom I love. It's the same word, beloved. In other words, Paul, this is another way of saying that this is, that they are his beloved people, that Paul's favorite word, he's applying in a sense twice to them in this one verse. Now, why does he do this? Why does he go to all these pains to belabor the point that he just loves these people with, with so much love and affection? 
Well, the answer is he's going to say something really harsh in verses 2 and 3. What Paul says in this, this verse is unprecedentedly harsh. Like, in other words, there is no other passage of Scripture, and I'll, I'll show you one that, the one that comes closest, I think, next time. But there is really no other place in all of Paul's writings where he calls out two people by name and tells them to get their act together. And so what Paul is going to do in verses 2 and 3 is hard, it's harsh, it's, it's not nice, you might say, in the conventional sense of what is nice. And so Paul goes to great lengths to tell them, I'm not calling you on the carpet because I'm mad at you. I'm calling these two people on the carpet because I love you deeply. And this is important. It's part of your faith. This is what it means to stand firm in the Lord. It means to work on your stuff in a biblical way. Okay, and so that's why Paul takes such enormous effort to reassure his love to the people who comprise the church at Philippi. And as we close out our section for this morning... I think there's some application that we can make from just this, just from the way that Paul phrases and prepares for the rebuke that is coming. As I mentioned, Paul is about to do and say something that's very harsh. He's about to name two people publicly and call on them to get along with each other in the Lord. But before that, he tells them to shape up, he lavishly reminds the entire church of his love for them. And the question that I have to ask myself and I invite you to ask yourself is, do you do that? When you need to have a hard conversation with somebody, do you just rip into them with your words? Or do you give them some reassurance of how much they mean to you, how valuable the relationship is to you, how much you care about them? Do you lubricate, in a sense, your correction of others with reassurances of your love? Do you do that with other Christians when you have a disagreement or problem to resolve with them? Do you speak to your spouse that way when you have an argument with him or her? Especially if the argument is about something you think that they're doing wrong. Do you remind your spouse how much you care about them? How about your kids? Do you correct them while still also affirming your love for them? Do you tell them that the correction you're about to give them is given in love? Not because you're mad, but because you don't want to see them go a wrong direction in their lives. You want to see them avoid displeasing God and feeling the pain of sin and its consequences. You, you've lived long enough that you've seen how small decisions start people down a road that takes them in a very bad direction. And when we call our children to, um, to consider their ways, I think usually, or at least it should be, that's our desire and our goal is to say, I don't want, you to, I don't want to see you end up down there because I've seen other people go down this road and make those kinds of decisions. That's a loving thing to do. And yet, sometimes we're so concerned about our children that we come across in ways that are really harsh. There's no love layered on to the words, lubricating the, the correction that we give them. 
What about this? Do you speak in a loving way or in a way that communicates a harsh tone of anger as if their sin was some personal attack against you? It almost certainly wasn't. Almost most of what children do that we don't like isn't necessarily directed against us. Even their disobedience is really about them just wanting something different than what we want. And yet, a lot of times, if you listen to parents, you'll hear how they, they take every act of disobedience or everything their child wants to do as almost as if it's a personal attack against them. This is a great way to ruin your relationship with your kids. And I remember when, I was, when, my, when my children were very young, I remember, um, I don't remember all the details, I just kind of remember the incident where I was like in a store somewhere and um, hearing a very annoyed parent speak very harshly to her child. And I remember thinking, like, that, that was really rough. And then I thought, you know, I use that tone of voice with my kids sometimes too. And I can't say it cured the problem, but I can't say, I, I can't tell you that it gave me a new perspective on things and it caused me to try to be, be different in the way that I treated, in the way that I spoke to my children, even taking on a tone of voice that is more measured and more calm. One that doesn't act offended or upset, but one that really expresses the problem in ways that uh, hopefully they'll, they'll consider. I mean, people get defensive, right? When when someone clearly is angry with them, you get defensive. And so that's not a good posture for correction. Here's another thought about this. Is your correction, is our correction of others, tied directly to their faith in Christ? That's what Paul's doing here. In other words, do we tie the confrontation of sin in someone else's life to their walk with God? Or do we just say that that was wrong? Shame on you, you know. I mean, these, these are not, the idea of shame is not really one that comports well with the gospel, <laughs> okay? Christ took on our sin and shame to forgive us. We don't motivate each other by shaming one another. We call one another to a life of obedience because we want to walk with God and we want to reflect His glory in the world. Do we, but we, do we do this in our conversations when we have carved conversations with others? Do we say, I'm concerned about your walk with Christ? I want to make sure that you are standing firm in Him, that you are persevering in Him. Do we remind people that standing firm in Christ, persevering in the faith, really means obedience in very practical ways? That's what Paul's getting to. This idea of standing firm in Christ in, in verse 1 is a strong idea, and it's one that we think about when the fires of persecution are, you know, are stoked and somebody's about to be burned at the stake for their faith, we say, stand firm in Jesus, and that's correct. But standing firm in Jesus doesn't mean clinging to him in the moment you're about to give your life for the gospel, because most of us won't be called to do that. Standing firm for Jesus means many things, but one of them is in the day-to-day -day ways that we treat one another. That's what Paul's getting to in this, in this paragraph. That's why I put this verse with the ones that follow, because I think that's why it's there. And so when we correct ourselves or when we correct other people, do we remind them or ourselves that persevering in the faith means practical obedience like this, that resolving things in a godly way is part of obedience to Jesus Christ. It's part of what following Christ means. 
Now look, some problems in our life, some problems in our family, some problems in the Christian church should be overlooked. Some people are way too sensitive. They get bent out of shape over things that people don't even mean to be, you know, in other words, people take things personally that aren't actually done against them because people are really sensitive, okay? Some problems should be overlooked, but many problems should be addressed lovingly, Christianly, directly. I think the problem that we have is we are confrontational about the little stuff that should be forgotten, and we avoid the big questions, the big problems that should be spoken to. We do it in our families, we do it in our church, and it's not right before God. It's not good for them. It's not standing firm in the Lord. And so when we speak to others in a confrontational way, but we do it in a way that reaffirms our belief that they are followers of Christ, that we are brothers and sisters together under the Lord Jesus Christ by His grace and His grace alone. And when we reaffirm our love for one another and our desire to spend eternity with them, this is a better brand of happiness. It can cause a better brand of happiness. It's not a false happiness that sweeps problems under the rug and says, oh, it's not a problem. It's, not, it's no big deal. Well, inside, resentment is building. This is what people do, right? They say, oh, it's no big deal because they don't want the confrontation. But inside, they're seething with resentment. It's not the kind of happiness I'm talking about here. Nor is it the kind of abuse that comes from unhappiness, taking your problems out and your emotional struggles out on other people. People do this, all right? They get really upset, they take it out on other people, and then they feel a sense of relief. That ain't the better brand of happiness I'm talking about. Instead, I'm talking about what you might call a surgical kind of happiness. In surgery, what do you do? You delicately, not you, but the surgeon, delicately and skillfully wounds the patient in order to fix a problem that is more than skin deep within the patient. The wound is necessary to correct the issue. Surgery hurts, but it leaves the patient in a mode where he or she can actually heal. And after it heals, if it's successful, it leaves the patient healthier and happier than they were before they had the surgery. So too, the kind of loving approach to problems, the kind of loving speech that Paul models for us here in verse 1, before he lowers the boom on these two women in verse 2, this kind of loving speech that Paul models tends toward a better brand of happiness because it solves real problems in the best possible way with correction and restoration. Now, you know and I know that even the best approach doesn't solve every problem. Some people are willful. Sometimes it takes more time. Sometimes people never come around. So I'm not saying this solves every problem because it doesn't. But I think you know and I know that when we have these hard conversations and we reaffirm our love for others, that many issues can be solved this way. And this is a better brand of happiness. It's a better brand of happiness than ignoring problems and sweeping them under the rug, than lowering the boom on people just because you're angry. It's the kind of happiness, it's the kind of love that truly cares about the person, but also in that person or two people maybe who are in conflict in their dimension with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, stand firm in the Lord. And he's going to plead for them to have the same mind in verse 2, in the Lord. There's that dimension of their relationship with God that should draw them together. When we learn to address problems with one another in ways that are loving, 
we'll find a better brand of happiness.